Hello, and welcome to Primary Care Anywhere, a resident-led podcast from the University of Utah Internal Medicine Program in Salt Lake City. My name is Will, and I am one of the current chief residents. I will be your guide today as we discuss a topic that is commonly on our patients' minds at this time of the year, diet and weight loss. We have an ever-expanding array of tools to help our patients lose weight, from pharmacotherapy, surgery, exercise prescriptions, etc. To keep things focused, however, today we will specifically address dietary interventions for the patient trying to lose weight. Let's frame our discussion with a case. Your patient is a 42-year-old with past medical history of GERD, prediabetes, obesity, and hypertension who presents to your clinic for a routine follow-up appointment. After addressing their home BP measurements, GERD symptoms, and medication adherence, they bring up a new problem. They tell you that every new year, they set a resolution to lose weight and try out a new diet. They mention how these fad diets are really complicated They often end up getting overwhelmed, feel too busy, stop their diet, and gain more weight when it comes around to the next New Year's. They mentioned this year that they have a coworker who has lost 30 pounds on something called intermittent fasting. They ask you if that's the right diet for them. So, we've got three excellent segments today from current residents Dylan, Keegan, and Joel diving into what literature is out there on dietary interventions for weight loss. But first, let's explore some key basic principles of how to effectively counsel patients on weight loss. First and foremost, be sensitive to the stigma and discrimination that is directed against obese individuals by our society. Reflect on your own implicit bias and take action to change your language and clinical space to combat it. Treat obesity management as what it is, chronic disease management. In light of this stigma and discrimination, empathic communication is even more important than in some other situations. Using active listening skills to develop a sense of mutual understanding and partnership is the backbone to successful discussion of weight loss in the clinic. Now that we feel comfortable addressing weight loss, let's hear about what to include in our counseling. Take it away, residents. All right, this is Dylan Wurst. I'm a third-year medical resident at the University of Utah. Today, I'll be discussing the article, Comparison of Weight Loss Diets with Different Compositions of Fat, Protein, and Carbohydrates. This is from the New England Journal of Medicine in February 2009 by Sachs et al., This is a randomized control trial using the intention to treat protocols conducted by two centers. The participants were 30 to 70 years of age with BMIs between 25 to 40 who were motivated to lose weight. Those excluded had cardiovascular disease, it was unstable, diabetes, or medications that affected body weight. The patients or participants were randomly assigned to one of four diets that use different compositions of fat and protein, which predicates the composition of carbohydrates. So a low fat or high fat was 20% by 40 versus 40%. And average protein versus high protein was 15% versus 25%. So we'd had low fat average protein, low fat high protein, high fat average protein, and so on. This also meant that the carbohydrate 
composition was anywhere from 35% to 65%. They screened 1,638 participants. They randomly uh, inclu or they included 811 who were randomly assigned to one of the four diets, and 645 were able to complete the study at two years for about 79% retention. Also, each of these four diets had a 750 kilocalorie per day deficit from their baseline. And these baselines and their study diets were surveyed by food diary and phone recalls throughout the study. Participants also attended regular group sessions and individual sessions every two months. When they initiated the, the trial, they had body weight and waist circumference recorded, as well as fasting serum lipids, glucose, insulin, A1Cs. And these were repeated at six months and two years during the study. If a patient was lost to follow-up after six months, they were automatically regained, uh, their data was auto automatically to uh, regain 0.3 kilograms per month and 0.3 centimeters per waist circumference per month they, uh, from when they withdrew. The study groups were pretty well matched. Uh, they were on average about the age of 51. They were 64% female, and they had a BMI around 33%, with over 70% of participants with a BMI over 30%. At six months, all four diets lost about six and a half kilograms or 14 and a half pounds from baseline. And they all lost about six centimeters or two and a half inches from their waist circumference. Uh, at two years, these gains kind of diminished closer to uh, three to four kilograms of weight loss and four to five centimeters off your waist circumference. At two years, 31 to 37% lost about 5% uh, of their initial body weight 14 to 15% lost at least 10% of their body weight, and 2 to 4% lost 20 kilograms or more. They found that at these group sessions, they strongly correlated with weight loss, so much that 0.2 kilograms of weight loss per session attended. And this was uh, similar throughout the four groups. Those who attended over two-thirds of the sessions over the course of two years lost about 9 kilograms of weight. They also found that macronutrient goals were difficult to achieve throughout the study and that all diets showed a similar uh, response in craving, fullness, hunger, and satisfaction at six months and two years. Uh, this is an important study to consider because oftentimes our patients will ask us if they should be eating more protein, less carbohydrates, less fat. And it, this is a, a study that would kind of uh, bolster our argument that the most important thing that we can do is have a caloric deficit if we really want to have weight loss and the most important thing is sticking to the diet so a diet that, that you already enjoy just less of it might be a better option for uh, sustained weight loss hello there my name is keegan and i'm a second year resident i'm going to be discussing one of the hottest topics in weight loss strategies intermittent fasting this is a method where you cycle between various time periods of fasting and eating. This strategy has become increasingly popular over the last decade, with millions of books promoting the idea. I've even tried it myself. Despite its popularity, there have been limited studies regarding the efficacy of these weight loss strategies, and we'll be going over a few of them. There are different methods of intermittent fasting, including what's called time-restricted fasting, or only eating between certain hours of the day. I will be specifically referring to studies that have evaluated the method known as alternate day fasting. Alternate day fasting, or ADF, refers to alternating between one day eating 25% of your suggested total caloric intake 
which is usually around 500 calories based on a 2,000 calorie diet, and having the next day be a feast day where you can eat whatever you want. This is in contrast to a traditional diet where you simply try to restrict your total caloric intake every day to achieve weight loss and the health benefits that come with it. The first study of interest, titled Alternate Day Fasting for Weight Loss in Normal Weight and Overweight Subjects, a Randomized Controlled Trial, was published in 2013 in the Nutrition Journal. In brief, this study looked at overweight and normal weight people with a BMI between 20 and 30 who followed an ADF diet for 12 weeks. This resulted in a mean body weight decrease of 5.2 kilograms relative to the control group, as well as improvement in some cardioprotection biomarkers. This study showed promising efficacy for ADF to achieve weight loss in a relatively short time period, with the caveat being this was only in normal and overweight people, but not obese people. More recently, a 2017 study titled Effective Alternate Day Fasting on Weight Loss, Weight Maintenance, and Cardioprotection Among Metabolically Healthy Obese Adults was published in JAMA Internal Medicine and sought to compare alternate day fasting to more traditional caloric daily restriction. Their hypothesis was that the alternate day fasting group would be more adherent to their diet, achieve greater weight loss, and have improved markers for cardiovascular disease compared to the daily calorie restriction group. They followed 100 participants between the ages of 18 and 65 with a BMI between 25 and 40 and a sedentary lifestyle. They were divided evenly between an alternate daily fasting group, a daily calorie restriction group, and a no-intervention control group and followed for one year. The alternate day fasting group restricted their caloric intake to 25% of their baseline caloric needs, or about 500 calories, as one lunch on their fast days. The following day, they would eat 125% of their baseline caloric intake, split between three meals. The daily calorie restriction group consumed 75% of their baseline caloric needs every day, split between three meals. The results of the study showed that their primary outcome of weight loss was not significantly different between the alternate day fasting groups who achieved negative 6% body weight change in the calorie restriction group who achieved negative 5.3% body weight change relative to the control groups. Participants in the ADF group were found to have significantly higher HDL levels at 6 months and LDL levels at 12 months. Otherwise, there was no significant difference in the intervention groups in blood pressure, heart rate, triglycerides, fasting glucose, fasting insulin, insulin resistance, CRP, or homocysteine concentrations at months 6 or 12. This study concluded that alternate day fasting did not produce superior diet adherence, weight loss, weight maintenance, or improvement in risk indicators for cardiovascular disease compared with a traditional daily calorie restriction. Of note, they predominantly enrolled metabolically healthy, obese individuals in the study, which may have hindered their ability to produce greater improvement in measures of cardiovascular disease. One of the initial assumptions of the study was that it would be easier to more severely restrict calories every other day compared to restricting them at a moderate level every day, but this appears to not be the case, as more of the alternate day fasting participants were dissatisfied with the diet and withdrew from the study early. Ultimately, alternate day fasting may be less sustainable in the long term compared with daily calorie restriction. When discussing weight loss strategies with your patients, you now have some knowledge of the efficacy of intermittent fasting to back up your suggestions. Some of your patients may be interested in wanting to try these intermittent fasting diets that their friends told them about to achieve weight loss, and based on these studies, 
Similar weight loss can be achieved, but it may be harder to maintain. Thank you for listening. Hey everybody, this is Joel Money. I'm one of the third year residents at the University of Utah Internal Medicine Program. And I'm gonna be talking about some commercial weight loss programs that are out there. Hopefully at this point, we've established that in overweight or obese patients that losing weight is generally a good idea. I'm gonna review a systematic review that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2015. It's called The Efficacy of Commercial Weight Loss Programs. The objective of this paper was to examine the benefits, adherence rates, and potential harms of commercial weight loss programs compared to control groups that were like education or behavioral counseling groups in obese patients. This is a systematic review. They found a list of 141 commercial weight loss programs that they gathered from obesity experts, U.S. News and World Report rankings, and Google searches. And they wanted to include programs that emphasize just nutrition, so things like diet changes, meal replacements, or both, as well as behavioral counseling, social support components, with or without physical activity. They excluded programs that focused on components other than weight loss, for example, like wellness or food addiction kind of stuff. And they also excluded programs that promoted medications, supplements, or that weren't available in the United States. So with those criteria, they found 32 programs and then ultimately ended up searching Medline and Cochrane as well as the, the program websites themselves uh, for, for trials from the dates of 2002 to 2014. The main inclusion criteria for their Medline and Cochrane searches was randomized controlled trials of 12 weeks duration at least. The primary outcome they were interested in was mean percent of weight change and secondary outcomes was percent of patients achieving weight loss of at least 5% in their controlled trials. Uh, they used uh, the Cochrane Collaborations tool to assess risk of bias. So they ended up finding 4,000 papers that were gathered from Medline and Cochrane uh, databases. And based on their inclusion and exclusion criteria, they narrowed it down to 45 trials and 62 papers that represented 11 commercial weight loss programs. And those programs, if you're interested, include Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, Nutrisystem, HMR, Metafast, Optifast, Atkins, Biggest Loser Club, eDiets, Lose It, and SlimFast. The age range of the patients included in the systematic review were 37 to 57, and the majority were female. The big results were that uh, the most popular commercial weight loss programs, which included Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, and Nutrisystem, all it resulted in at least 2 to 5% greater weight loss at 12 months compared to the control groups, which were primarily uh, like health education and behavioral counseling. Uh, some of the other programs like HMR and Metafast and Atkins uh, did also result in sig significantly more weight loss compared to control groups, although these had higher risk of bias. The only harms associated uh, with these interventions that the authors found was the, the commercial weight loss groups were sometimes more constipated, but no other real harms. Uh, the authors then discussed uh, offering Affordable Care Act or Medicare or Medicaid coverage of these commercial weight loss programs 
because of the findings in their paper suggesting that they would have statistically significant amounts of weight loss. So in summary, you know, if your patient's not interested in an intensive lifestyle management program, for example, at the VA, there are MOVE program or multidisciplinary weight loss clinics, uh, but would be more interested in something like a commercial weight loss program, it would be reasonable to consider or, you know, giving them more information about something like Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, or Nutrisystem, depending on uh, the affordability of these programs for your patient. Thanks, guys. Let's apply some of what we learned to our case. Using your excellent listening and empathic communication skills, you recognize your patient's courage embracing what can be a difficult subject and acknowledge their frustration and feelings of failure, despite good intentions. You emphasize that the two of you can work together to create a diet plan that is personalized to their preferences, abilities, and current capacity. You then elicit the patient's food preferences and create a diet plan that is focused on caloric restriction of foods that they prefer to eat. You advise that intermittent fasting can be effective, but is not necessarily superior to traditional daily caloric restriction. You finally communicate that certain commercial programs can be worthwhile and result in improved weight loss if the patient has financial capacity to use them. So, Let's recap our main takeaways. We do not have convincing data to support one macronutrient predominant diet over another. What is most important is a caloric deficit and a patient's likelihood of maintaining adherence to their chosen diet. Participation in a structured group-based approach correlates with increased weight loss and maintenance. Alternate day fasting was non-inferior to a traditional daily caloric restriction diet but did not produce superior results in overall loss, maintenance, adherence, or biomarkers. Finally, RCT data supports increased efficacy of some commercial weight loss programs compared to control groups, with the caveat that they do cost more money. All right, that wraps things up. Thanks again for listening to Primary Care Anywhere. Bye!